survey of the minor prophets. And as I've often said, they are minor prophets, not because they are insignificant or their message is of minor importance. That is not what it means. It means that the books themselves are relatively shorter than the other prophets. However, as we come to Zechariah, this is a rather longer of the minor prophets. It's the longest of the minor prophets. It's the 11th of the 12 minor prophets. And um, we are going to be looking at this for the next couple of weeks. First of all, we want to consider the man and his ministry. Um, Zechariah was a contemporary with Haggai. We looked at Haggai for a couple of weeks. It's a much shorter book. But Haggai is one who, along with Zechariah, had come back after the 70-year captivity when the children of Israel had been taken into Babylon because of their great sins and their idolatry and apostasy. God had taken them out of their land as he had warned them in Deuteronomy 28. And he has now brought them back after 70 years. And among those who are returning in that remnant of almost 50,000 people is the man Haggai as well as Zechariah. And these are prophets that God has raised up uh, for this particular time because there were needs even among this remnant that has returned. So Zechariah, no doubt, was he was born while in Babylon. He would have been raised there. He's referred to in chapter 2 as being a young man, and that's a relative term, I guess, but he's younger probably than Haggai, and uh, he is one who was used by God to challenge the people to begin to rebuild the temple. This is what they were called to do, and you remember Cyrus made a decree that they could go back. He even provided finances for them to go and to build their temple to Yahweh, So they went back, but they started, and they laid the foundation. They got discouraged. They had opposition, and they ceased the work for about 16, 17 years. God raised up these two prophets to confront the people. They were more concerned about their own things and refurbishing their own houses rather than restoring the temple and God being there in their midst. And so these prophets ministered during this time And they're referred to as post-exilic prophets. And Malachi, that we'll also be looking at, is one of these prophets. That means after the exile. The other ones were pre-exilic. These are post-exilic prophets. And uh, so he is coming, as well as Haggai, not only to exhort them to rebuild, but to encourage them. Many of the hearts were despondent, discouraged. There There was a lot of difficulties living now back in the land that has been ravaged by war and the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Many were discouraged. Many remembered the former temple, how big and beautiful it was. And as they they started work on this one, they they were discouraged by this. So Zechariah is one who is giving hope for a despondent people. And he wants them to see their God is accomplishing his purposes that God is on the throne and one day he will rule and reign uh, forever. We see also that he, has, he was a man with a, a message in his name. Zechariah, interestingly enough, means 
the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh remembers. And I can't help but think that his parents were believing Jewish parents, and they were recognizing as they were in captivity in Babylon that the end of this 70 years is coming near. Daniel was one that was like that. We read about it. I think it's in Daniel 9, realizing that the 70 years is about to end, and God has promised he's going to take his people back to the land and restore them there. And I wonder if they, as they had this little baby, knowing that this time is coming, that they named him Zechariah, the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. Now, this isn't the way the the Lord remembers when my wife says to me, Kevin, do you remember? Did you remember to stop at the grocery store? Did you remember to get what I asked you? Um, That's not the way it is used of the Lord. When it says the Lord remembers, the Lord remembers in the sense that he knows a promise that he has made, and he remembers it and is now going to bring it to pass. And therefore, we read in Jeremiah 29, verse, many of you know verse 11, but this is verse 10, and it says this, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. I know, for I, uh, I, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and give you a hope. And so maybe they named this little baby the Lord remembers because he's going to remember his promise. We can count upon that. He remembered his children when they were in when they were in bondage in Egypt. It says the Lord remembered the promise He had made to their fathers, and after 400 years He would bring them out, and indeed He did. And again, we have what we might see as a second Exodus. God has remembered. God has fulfilled His promise, and He has brought back um, His people. He's bringing back His people to the land. He is the promise keeper. Promises made to Abraham, he is going to fulfill. And so they are back in the land, and this is according to his word. But as we look at this book, we also are reminded that his message is a a message about second chances. Maybe there were questions in the minds of many of these people. Would the Lord really take us back? Would he re-own us? Is he really with them? Is, Is he their God? Because they had broken covenant. They had, God had made a covenant with them at Sinai. They broke that covenant. You might say they were married to God. They broke this covenant. They were unfaithful, and God put them away. He, he, he took them to Babylon, as he had said he would do. And you remember the first prophet, which was Hosea. He was, rem- he was married to Gomer, and when they had their children, they named them Names that were reflective of what's going on in their history. One of them was named Lo Ruhama, No Mercy, and Lo Ami, Not My People, Not My People. And so they were put off and they were taken into Babylon. And so there may be the question in their minds could God ever take us back? Could there ever be a second chance, we might say? And notice in verse 3, of chapter 1, therefore say to them, 
Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. It's a call of repentance. They've been back to the land. They return back to the land, but many of them need to return with their hearts. And so here's the call, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And notice the next phrase, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I will receive you back. I will take you back. In chapter 8, he's going to say there that I'm, I'm jealous for Zion. He's jealous for his people. And if you remember the story of Hosea, the very first prophet, I'm sure you all remember all of that, that Hosea was called to marry this woman that was unfaithful. She was unfaithful to him. And yet this man was called to love her and to take her back. And he goes and he finds her after she had left him and she had been the prodigal wife and she was living in a far country and she's now in a slave market. He goes and he buys her out of the slave market and he takes her back as his wife. And this is a beautiful story that is being painted for us. Here is God, in spite of the sin of his people, he is taking them back to himself. He has told Abraham he is going to make of him a seed. He's not forgotten his promises, and he's going to take them back. And here is here's a new beginning. Here is what well, we could even say maybe a second chance. And what we find written over the history of, redempt, of redemptive history are, are these words from Paul in Romans 5, that where sin has abounded, what? Grace does much more abound. That, that wasn't just the, their story. That's our story if we're a Christian. Where sin has abounded in our life, the grace of God does much more abound. Maybe you're here today you're not a follower of Christ, and you might think to yourself, could there, could there be hope for me? I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I've sinned against God, and I've not followed God. I've not loved God. I've not served God. Is it possible that I've sinned away God's grace? Well, the gospel message is, no, there is hope for the worst of sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke 15 tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were upset with Jesus because he sat down and he ate with tax collectors, with sinners, with prostitutes. Second chance. Here is a Savior who receives sinners. Jesus says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so as we think of this message of Habak- or excuse me, Zechariah, we also see that it is a message that is saturated with a messianic hope. One commentator said that Zechariah is the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. That's quite a statement. But one of the things that we see in the book of Zechariah, it is saturated with promises and things that are foretold concerning the coming Messiah. There's still this hope that is laid before them. The Messiah is going to come. As we read our New Testaments, we find many of the things that we find in Zechariah being quoted there, especially in the Gospels. A lot of the metaphors that we see 
um, in Zechariah and these visions we will see in the book of Revelation. And it's all pointing to Christ. And so in this book, we will see both the first and the second comings of Christ as we read through it. It talks about his sufferings, but it talks about his glory as well. He's referred to as the branch. Isaiah takes this imagery of a branch. You think of the Davidic line and like a tree that has been cut off and it is gone. The tree, this massive tree is now gone. And that's what happened to David's line. They're taken away and the, king, the kingly line ends and they're taken into Babylon. But Isaiah says there's a sprout. <laughs> there's a, a little shoot that's going to come up out of the, the roots of David. And this will be the branch. This will be the one that will be the Messiah that will bring blessing. And we see that here in the book of Zechariah. We see that he'll be, to, uh, he'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He will, quote these verse, Jesus himself, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. He was one who would be despised and rejected. Also, he is the king who will be coming to you and he will be humble and lowly and he will come riding up on the full of, an, uh, of a donkey. This happened on, um, uh, what do we call it? Palm Sunday. Hey, <laughs> thank you. I went to my 50th class reunion last night. That's depressing. Anyway. Palm Sunday, he, he is the one who comes riding. And this is a fulfillment of what Zechariah says. Zechariah presents him to, to us not only as a king, but he's also a priest, a priest and a king. He's the one that will remove iniquity from his people in one day. In one day. And what did Jesus say on the cross? It is what? Finished. In one day. He will make an end of iniquity and a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. Here's this fountain that is going to be opened up for sinners, for cleansing from their sin. And so it is a book that is saturated with messianic hope. Secondly, this morning, we want to consider the first portion of the book of Zechariah. We're not going to be looking at this in depth. Uh, This is to be an overview. But what we find in chapters 1 to 6, there is, uh, Zechariah is given eight night visions where God is communicating through these visions to Zechariah to give to the people. And God often implied, employed visions or dreams to explain what's going on in current events as well as future events. Hebrews 1 says that God, who in the former times, he spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and he spoke to them in many different ways. Uh, Sometimes directly he would speak to them and give them a word, but sometimes he would use visions, he would use dreams. And he did this often with the patriarchs. And even 
through a dream, he spoke to, to Pharaoh. Um, and here, this prophet, Zechariah, has in one night, he has eight visions. And admittedly, as I study through these, I recognize that these, some of these are very hard to understand. A lot of things in Zechariah that are hard to understand. Some of these dreams are kind of strange. I have a lot of strange dreams um, that make no sense to me. Um, And I had one the other night. It was more like a nightmare that my wife had brought home five more cats. (laughs) I'm waiting for our one last cat to die. And that's going to be the end. And I had this nightmare. My dreams often make no sense, but here are dreams that this man has that is explaining and going to be given to the people to communicate to them, to give them a little picture of things, to help them to understand things. So there's a picture of horsemen, there are chariots, there are four horns and four craftsmen, a woman in a basket with a a lid on the top of it, There's a flying scroll. There's a man that's got a measuring line. And uh, some of these are kind of strange and hard to interpret some of them. But by and large, they they are helpful for Zechariah to communicate some of the things that God is going to do and is doing in the present time and he will do in the future. God is going to reign. He will reign as king. He will accomplish his purpose. The Messiah will come. He will bring cleansing to the people of God. And one of the things that we see here is a Hebraic chiastic structure to these visions. There's eight visions, and there's what what is called a chiastic structure to it. Now, you know your pastor that he didn't come up with this on his own. This is something I, I had to read about and learn about. But often what is, you know, when we follow a story, it usually climaxes at the end, right? Everything builds up to the final climax. And uh, sometimes, though, in Hebrew writings, the climax would be in the middle of the story or the middle of what is being written. Many of our psalms are like that. And so here we have eight visions And they're arranged such that the first and the eighth uh, of these visions are related. There's some resemblance between those two. And then number two and number seven, three and six. And then you get to the middle two, which is vision four and five. And uh, this really becomes what is being emphasized by the prophet. And those two... Our number four is the high priest in filthy clothes. We're going to look at that next week. It's our privilege to come to the Lord's table. And I thought it would be appropriate to look at that one in light of uh, coming to the Lord's table. Here is Joshua who's dressed in these filthy garments. He's the high priest. And he's in these filthy garments. And it's pointing us to Christ. So we're going to look at that one next week. But it reminds us of a great high priest that is going to come. And then the fifth one is a golden lampstand. That's the one that we want to just briefly look at today. And uh, so these two are showing us these two leaders, Joshua, who's the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, who is the kingly line, who is called to rebuild the temple. 
that God is saying in both of them, he's going to accomplish his purposes. And in chapter 4, we have this vision, and there is this lampstand that we see in this vision that is given to us. It's a golden lampstand. It's got seven lights. It would be very similar to the menorah that was in the temple. We read about that in Exodus, that in the holy place, there was a, a menorah that had seven lamps, and the priests would, their job was to keep oil in those, to take olive oil to keep the lights burning 24-7. Um, it gave light to them as they ministered in the holy place, but it also, I think, was telling Israel, you are to be a light to the nations, which they had not been. They had not been a light to the nations, but they were to be a light. So there is this similarity to the seven-branch menorah that was in the temple. But this vision has this golden lampstand with the seven lamps on the top, but above it is a bowl. And then to either side of it are these olive trees. And there was a gold tube that went from the olive trees down into the bowl, supplying it with oil. And then that oil went through tubes down to each one of the lamps. And it's a picture here of ample provision for these lamps. Oil is being supplied in abundance for these lamps um, as they are burning there. And the message that is focused upon here are, are these olive trees. And the message is primarily being given to Zerubbabel. And we read in verse uh, 5, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me. By the way, in these visions, there's this conversation that's going on between the angel and Zechariah. What do you see, Zechariah? Well, this is what I see. And then Zechariah is saying, okay, I, I see it, but what is it all about? And then an explanation is being given. And one of the things that we find in Zechariah is, God is basically saying, I want you to look and to see, to learn. There are things that I want to teach you through these things. There's not a lot of exhortation, but there's a lot of just look and listen and learn. This is for your good. And so here is this vision of this of this uh, lampstand, this golden lampstand. The angel who talked with me answered and said, do you know, know, know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then here's a verse that I think we're all very familiar with. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now remember, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's in the kingly line. There's no more king. He's just a governor under the rule of Darius at this time. He's just the governor, but he is in the line of David, as we saw last a couple of weeks ago, and here's the word that is given to this man, Zerubbabel, who's in charge of rebuilding this house, the temple of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone and amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And then you will know 
that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So here is this vision that is given, and Zerubbabel, no doubt, is encouraged here. God is saying, Zerubbabel, it's not by your might. It is not by your power, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord. I am going to enable you to do the task that I have given to you. It is an important task. It is to rebuild the temple. And I want you to know that I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to enable you by my all-sufficient power and grace. The spirit and anointing oil was all often used to speak about God setting apart someone to a service to accomplish, and the spirit would be upon him. And here it is for Zerubbabel. As you rebuild, I will enable you to do this, and it will be accomplished. He, he is told this. It will be completed. And when that day comes, when you see this temple completed, which would be in about two years, you will know that I have been sent by God, that God sent me as a prophet. And the word that I speak to you is true. And so here is this beautiful encouragement to this man, Zerubbabel, that God is with him. God's power would be at work in him. And you know, as we think about the cause of the gospel as we think about the work of the gospel. Our hope is not in men. Our hope is not in the power of men. We are told many places something like this. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Here's this encouraging word, not just for Zerubbabel, but for us. Woe to those who go down to Egypt, Isaiah says, for help, and they rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Don't go down to Egypt. The Lord is your hope. The Lord is your strength. And so it was for Zerubbabel, and so it is for God's people. He is our hope. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who enables us to do what he has called us to do. You know, as we live the Christian life, there are many, many difficulties that we face, are there not? Hardships, difficulties, things that Christ has called us to that are hard. And we agree with the words of Christ that without me you can do nothing. For we heard from the Apostle Paul, I have learned, I have learned Whatever state I'm in, I can be content and I can know that God's grace is sufficient for me. Whatever you may be facing, whatever God has called you to, his grace is sufficient. It's not by might. It's not by power. There's none of us that are strong in ourselves. We are all weak and finite. But here's this beautiful picture that God gives grace abundant grace to his people. And this temple will be rebuilt. It will be accomplished. And so it's a helpful picture for us. Although it was directed to Zerubbabel, it's a helpful picture for us of these two olive trees that are supplying the needed oil and there's ample provision and there's ample provision for us. My grace is sufficient for you. A second encouraging thing that we see here is that there's an instructive word 
for Zerubbabel's day and for our own as well. Notice verse 10. This is probably another verse we're familiar with in this book. And it says, for whoever was despised, who, for, who, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. To those who despise the day of small things, they've come back to the land. The temple has just been destroyed. It is just now had a foundation leg, but it seems so insignificant right now. The cause of God in Israel and Judah seems so small. We're such a small remnant. We don't have many resources. We don't have much. And, and this temple project is enormous. And there were many who were despising the day of small things. Things look very, very small in this day. But he said to those who were despising these small things, don't do that. There's going to be rejoicing. This temple is going to be built and there will be the cries of grace to it, grace to it, God's favor, God's blessing upon this place. That day is going to come. There will be rejoicing. So don't despise the day of small things. And is this not a word for us as well? When you look at the Bible and its history, isn't it all about small things? God used small things. And what we learn is that the God of the Bible is big, and he gives help to his people And what may seem to be small becomes mighty. Think of little David. David goes to fight Goliath. You you all know the story, don't you? David comes and they put this armor on him and it's too big. He's like, I can't wear this. He just got his, I just got a sling. That's, That's all I need and five stones. And here is little David. No one else wanted to fight Goliath, but David goes. And he says, I come to you in the name of the God of Israel, that you are blaspheming. Don't despise the day of small things, little David, that God used. And the whole Bible is full of stories like that. You look at the life of Jesus Christ, a man that's despised and rejected of men, a man who was rejected and, and who was crucified. It might seem the cause of Christ is, or the cause of the gospel, the cause of God is small. But it is in the very, this seemingly small thing, a man being crucified on a tree outside of Jerusalem, that redemption is accomplished. And it's a reminder to us, don't despise the day What might seem to be small things, that's exactly what God uses. And it may just be a word that is spoken to a friend to encourage them. might be a small thing. Jesus said in Matthew 25, there are many who have given a cup of cold water. And as much as they've done it unto their brethren, what? They've, They've done it unto me. It's not a small thing. It may seem small. But by God's grace, it is something that God uses and blesses. 
And what we find Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 1 is that God, you know, the preaching of the cross to many is insignificant. It's of no consequence. To some, it's foolishness. To others, it's a stumbling block. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. And Paul says, when you look at who we are, God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That all the glory may go to God. All the glory might be his. So the story of the Bible is we have a great God who takes weak and insignificant things to accomplish his purpose. May we be found faithful to our God. May we seek to be those who trust him and his promised grace to us to do the things that he has called us to do. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word.